It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, but my words, like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today... Yes, Joe? We're going to be zooming in and enhancing on a topic we've talked about before. Yeah, we, we talked about Zoom and Enhance a while ago, right? We did one way back in uh, in 2013. You know, I haven't gone back and listened to any of our episodes from 2013 in a while, but I don't know. I feel like I'd be embarrassed to hear myself then. <laughs> yeah. We have learned a lot about podcasting. Yeah. I, I forgot more than I've ever learned. Wait, what? No. Anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, we, we recorded one about Zoom and Enhance with image uh, imagery back mm-hmm. in August 2013. We're recording this at the beginning of September 2015. So it's been more than two years. So clearly, wow. first of all. We finally solved that zoom and enhance for video and, and pictures, right? That's, right, that's yeah. done. Now you can take like a highly pixelated JPEG and turn it into a 
full motion 3D video. Yeah, it doesn't matter if that image was taken 70 years ago. You can still do it. You know, I came across just recently, uh, my wife Rachel and I have been going back through the X-Files yeah. because Ooh, it's up yeah, on Netflix yeah. and 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 uh, Christian, our, our colleague Christian, who's also on Stuff to Blow Your Mind with me and Lauren have been like, you've got to watch the X-Files. So we have. And we came across an episode that has probably the most egregious and ridiculous case of Zoom and Enhance I have ever seen in any show. It's an episode where there is a character who does psychic photography. So he, like, gets near a camera and whatever's going on in his head ends up on the film. And it's this Polaroid of somebody's vision of some hellish nightmare scape with these ghosts called howlers screaming around <laughs> a woman's face. And then in the background, there's this little blur and and Mulder goes to the lab where they zoom and enhance the little blur. And then they get this perfectly resolved picture of a guy's face from a Polaroid. Yeah, seems like that might be a little far-fetched. Um, yeah, as it turns out, we do not have this magical capability. Things have improved since 2013. Uh, you know, the the basic premise of Zoom and Enhance is all about you take you take an existing video or image, you concentrate your view on one particular sector of that image, and then you zoom that in and you are enhancing the picture so that it is more... Uh, that you can see what it is. Yeah. And for one thing, we've got super high-resolution cameras now. Mm-hmm. So there's some that are so high-resolution that at normal view, you'd be looking at, you know, like a uh, like a YouTube video, something along that size. And then it turns out that the resolution is so high, you could digitally punch into parts of that video and not lose a lot of resolution. So it gives you the effect of zoom and enhance, but really it's not enhancing. It's just that information is already there. Yeah. And that's the key. The information is already there. Yeah. We have never gotten and we will never get to a point where there can be information retrieved from an image that was not recorded in the image. No, we can have it simulated. Right. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today is finding ways to use what information is recorded in the image and do very smart things with it with computer programs. Right. And the really cool thing is that we're not talking about actual like images as the end result in this case uh, right. right we are talking about using images to reconstruct sound yeah and this all comes to us because uh, we watched a TED talk in which a, a computer scientist named Abe Davis talked about a really interesting project that involved cameras and uh not necessarily – well, I guess inanimate objects really uh, and being able to uh, reconstruct sound that took place near that inanimate object as if that inanimate object itself were a microphone. Say that all again. <laughs> all right. So um, there's this guy named Abe Davis. No, 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 no. <laughs> the relevant part, it does what with sound? So yeah, it acts as if any object itself – is a microphone, not in the sense of amplifying what was said, but in the sense of of being a a record of what was said. Like the vibrations of the material itself are able to inform us enough that we can we can uh, uh, replicate 
the sound that was created. Uh, yeah, he's he's part of this team that includes other researchers at MIT. He's a he's a grad student or possibly a graduate of MIT, uh, and also scientists over at Microsoft and Adobe. Mm-hmm. And this is so cool. Yes, this so this is a synesthesia machine. It sees <laughs> sound. This is, it's like it took a bunch of LSD and <laughs> began to see the music, right. except that's what literally th- they can do now. Yeah, it's and, and when you start to break down what's going on, it starts to be less magical, but no less amazing. Okay. All right, so let's let's take some of the mysticism and magic out first. And to do that, we have to talk about what sound is, which we've done on this show before, but I'm going to give a quick rundown. Sure. So sound is really the energy of vibration, mm-hmm. right? So when something vibrates, that's when it's make, creating a sound. And as long as there is some sort of medium for that sound to travel through. Uh, such as air. Exactly. Or water. water or the wood of a table that you've put your head down on. Right. Yeah. Uh, any of these things. Or a metal mask around your head. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> okay, Leonardo DiCaprio. Or a hatchet. I <laughs> bet you. Oh, now I we're going to. Could, yeah. Aaron, you're just giving Aaron Cooper fodder for the next <laughs> next image. All right. So, but yes, as long as there is a medium through which sound can travel, it will travel as far as it possibly can before the energy has essentially dissipated. And this is why sound does not really does not travel in space because space is effectively a vacuum. So there are no particles, there's no medium through which the sound can travel. But here on Earth, we've got air, thank goodness, because this is where I keep all my stuff. Mm -hmm. And air can act as a medium through which sound can travel. So what happens is when something vibrates, uh, it begins to pull and push uh, the air around it. So uh, if you imagine a vibration, some of those vibrations are going to move inward, based on your perspective, that's going to pull air toward it. Sometimes it's going to be moving outward, pushing air away from it. So think of like a a, uh, a vibrating string on a guitar or a vibrating drum head. Uh, that's going to be pushing and pulling air. Now, that air, in turn, is going to be pushing and pulling the air molecules around it and so on and so forth. It's this great big chain reaction because our atmosphere is a giant fluid. Right. It's it's a gas, but it's it's a it acts as a fluid. So these various molecules will continue to push and pull. And then eventually that motion will make it into the air inside of your ears. So it's not that the air molecules that were next to the strumming string on the guitar have magically made their way to your ear. It's rather that that motion has continued to move uh, at the speed of push to your (laughs) to the air inside your ears. Sure. Now, at that point, it ends up vibrating your eardrum, which then goes through this whole complicated series of uh, maneuvers where you talk about tiny bones and the cochlea and fluid. And we're not going to get into this to how hearing works. You can actually read an amazing article at HowStuffWorks.com on how hearing works that explains it. But our brains ultimately uh, interpret this motion as sound. Now, of course, the key fact here is that sound is vibration and that vibration is something that you could, in theory, see. Yeah. If you could see fast enough and if you could tell what you were looking at. Yeah. If you could see with the the ability to really 
notice minute changes. Yeah. I should have, I said fast enough. I should have said, uh, I guess, fast enough, enough frames per second and with enough resolution. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, this is like there's certain videos where if you do, you know, high speed photography, high speed film, you can see how how uh, something like a tuning fork uh, when you strike it and it's vibrating, you can actually see how it's moving in and out uh, of its normal alignment. And it looks really freaky because mm-hmm. when you just look at it with our normal eyes, our normal ability to perceive, it doesn't really have that, you know, you don't see it distorting like it does in that high speed video. But uh, if we could see it, and if we could then interpret those vibrations, if we if we knew, all right, it's vibrating at this speed and this amplitude, that would tell us the pitch and volume of the sound that was affecting it, if we knew enough of the properties of the material itself. So that's the basis of the experiment that these folks from MIT were following. And it was all about kind of uh, pointing a camera at... A, an object, a camera that was capable of detecting these minute changes, these these movements of that object, and then feeding that through a computer that had an algorithm that could interpret those changes as sound and then reconstruct the sound that must have happened to produce those changes. And the results are pretty Amazing. Yeah, I have to say I was really impressed. I, I am astonished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it was one of those things where, well, first of all, uh, they they decided to use Mary Had a Little Lamb as a lot of their, their you know, what they would try to record. Uh, right, which is a throwback to experiments that Edison uh, was doing way back when. Yeah, it, the first, the earliest recording that we know of that Thomas Edison made Dates to 1878. It was on a device that recorded messages onto tinfoil. Uh, interestingly, the the scholarship suggests that it wasn't Edison himself that provided the voice. It was probably someone else. But the voice says... I'm sure it was Watson. He made Watson do everything. <laughs> you know, the voice says, Mary had a little lamb. And it's very loud and very deliberate because the, the technology was brand new and it was not high fidelity by any stretch of the imagination. So this is kind of a... a, a a sort of genuflecting to history, saying, well, th- this was a significant moment in history. We're going to use that same uh, that same idea when we're trying this new experiment. And it worked like that. They, they did both tones of the song. Mary had a little lamb. And they also did spoken uh, variations of Mary Had a Little Lamb, which in the TED Talk, I highly recommend you watch it. It's very entertaining. Abe Davis is actually a very entertaining presenter. He is. He is. Yeah. And he talks about how he he shot a, you know, one of the videos, he shows the video of him shouting at an empty bag of potato chips. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is a very technical experiment that definitely involves MIT grad students yelling the lyrics to Mary Had a Little Lamb at Empty bags of potato chips. Right. He even talks about how, you know, originally they, they wanted to have the best possible um, a, a chance to be able to pick up these vibrations. Uh-huh. They knew that these uh, these vibrations were going to be tiny, like a micrometer. Uh, like like a tenth of a micrometer. Yeah, that's super tiny. Uh, so they wanted to be able to, to get that with a, a pretty high resolution, high speed camera. And they had to use 
a lot of light because these high speed cameras that, you know, the shutter speed is so fast that you need a lot of light to light your scene in order to get an image of what you're, you're pointing the camera at. And he even talked about how the lights were so hot that on a previous experiment, they melted the bag, uh, the empty bag of potato chips as a result of this. So it was a lot of trial and error early on, but it worked. Uh, yeah. So so they were using objects like like em- bags of potato chips, empty bags of potato chips and uh, potted plants. And the camera that they were using for these first experiments was was a high speed camera. It could capture at uh, 2000 to 6000 frames per second which is a higher frequency than the audio signal. Mm-hmm. But it certainly isn't like like the highest possible end high-speed camera yeah, on the market. It's not like a phantom or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the highest-speed cameras run something like a thousand, a hundred thousand frames per second, sorry. And the, the the software could could pick up these tiny these tiny tiny movements. Um a tenth of a micrometer is something like 5 thousandths of a pixel. And it could do that thanks to very subtle changes in each, in each pixel's color values at the edges of the objects that were being studied. So, yeah, and it's also uh, they, he pointed out in the TED talk that it's not like the camera was pointed at one particular tiny little edge of one of these objects. It could actually uh, take into account all of the different vibrations happening across the object. And that collectively, that provided the data necessary for them to be able to reconstruct the audio. Uh, right. It, it's rooted in research from 2012 from MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And the, the software that that team was developing was originally intended to amplify color changes in video, but then they realized that, that it could thereby amplify motion. And so they bent it to, to, uh, to tasks like monitoring blood flow unobtrusively. Yeah, they actually and then, show that in the video, right? The, they show mm-hmm. the pulse of someone's arm yeah. because of these minute changes. They're able to amplify that to the point where you can actually see the pulse, which is, by the way, a little freaky. <laughs> sure, but also pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And and so this this new team, this, this acoustic team in 2014 uh, built on top of that software, adding the algorithms that would identify the whole object and, and monitor its overall movements in order to create the uh, the, the sound goodness yeah. of reconstruction. <laughs> and it was interesting because once they determined that they could capture the motion uh, under those quote unquote ideal circumstances with the bright lighting and the high speed camera, they started to test how far outside of those ideal circumstances they could still capture meaningful information and be able to replicate the sound that occurred uh, next to that physical object. And, you know, the idea being that you would be able to replicate sound even if there were no microphones, no official microphones working. So uh, they ended up testing it with... um Normal daylight providing the lighting and shooting through a soundproofed window. So the camera was on one side of the window. The object was on the other side of the window. Another empty bag of chips. Yep. And <laughs> and that's where the, the sound was generated was on the other side of the soundproof window. So uh, in theory, there shouldn't have been any sound bleed over into the camera. And they could still pick up sound that way. Pretty, pretty, pretty clearly. Yeah. Um, and uh, with normal indoor light, they filmed a pair of earbuds, like normal plastic cheapo earbuds, <laughs> and then reconstructed the music that they were playing well enough that they successfully shazammed 
the music. And it was Under Pressure, yes. which I realize now I should have used a lyric from that for the beginning of the show. But never mind that. <laughs> Uh, they also furthermore found that they could use a standard camera, mm-hmm. not a highfalutin camera. <laughs> and we're talking standard, like like 60 frames per second smartphone camera or, you know, something you could run out and buy at Target. And this is thanks to a quirk in how standard digital cameras handle fast moving objects. Uh, it would be more accurate for for them to read measurements off of your whole array of photo d- detectors at the same time. But that is kind of expensive. So uh, so cameras that are less expensive than than super high speed cameras instead read off of their photo detectors one row at a time, sort yeah. of like scanline televisions. And it does this very quickly, but not instantaneously. Uh, sure. And it can lead to that weird lag that you might have noticed in some videos of high speed objects, like sort of jagged edges or, or extra pixelation when the object is moving faster than the software can can handle. Yeah, I think in uh, the, the MIT article we read, they, they used the example of a rotor blade of a helicopter. Right. Sure. Like sure. The, it might be spinning so fast that it's not going to capture it the same way your eye would see it, but it's going to scan the blade in a different position each line. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, on, on a much smaller level, invisible to the naked eye, this flaw in in normal cameras creates visual artifacts that the researchers found out that they could use in order to measure subtle vibrations. So uh, the the audio reconstructions that they got out of this experiment weren't as close to the original audio, uh, but the researchers did report that they could probably still identify like the number of speakers in a room or the identity of a speaker, given that you have an audio profile of the person's voice to begin with. Yeah, so uh, definitely a little more like... Um muted and a little more distorted to the point where if you had not already heard what was being said, you might not be able to necessarily reconstruct it. Um, our brains are interesting, right? Like if we hear what we're supposed to hear and then we hear the the sound played, we're more likely to pick it out. Sure. Uh, this is something that you find in people who claim for for like you know hidden messages and backmasking and that kind of stuff and ghost that, hunting and yeah if you if you listen to the raw sound file without any prompting you may end up saying i didn't make anything out and then someone says oh you need to listen for the phrase um help me jonathan has me trapped in the basement <laughs> you might end up hearing it yeah uh-huh. i try Some very prime, hard to make sure you for your brain. don't mm-hmm. hear it but you might hear it Okay, so anyway. <laughs> it's when you play under pressure backwards. Volvo, Volvo, Volvo. Oh, Freddie Mercury. Uh, other methods that you can use to pick up sound from a distance, uh, some of them use a similar method. Like there's uh, one that uses lasers. And in fact, at the TED Talk, Davis actually says, this particular approach, a lot of people might immediately spring to the conclusion that you would use it to spy on someone. You would uh, aim a camera in at something that would be kind of unobtrusive, like a potted plant that happens to be near a person's desk. And then you could end up replicating conversations that went on inside that room by just measuring the vibrations of that plant and then running it through this algorithm to recreate the sound that happened. Most evil plots take place in a room with a potted plant. Yeah, you Obviously. know. Obviously. Uh, yeah, that's – I only use uh, cacti now, but even they have have been deceptive. So the – the point that Davis makes is that this is pretty low fidelity if you want to do something like that. And if you really wanted to do that, there are alternatives that provide much higher quality recordings. 
mainly using laser microphones. Now, have you guys heard of laser microphones before we started looking into this? Uh, no. no, I don't think I had. It was one of those things that I had heard about only because I uh, was looking through the spy museum in Washington, D.C. and and read about them. So they work on a very similar principle, except instead of uh, detecting the vibrations optically, what they're doing is they're using – it's still optical, but it's not you know like a, a visual approach. Uh, you're shooting a laser out at an object – and as that object vibrates when it is exposed to sound, the uh, returning laser light, because, you know, it's all based on shooting a laser out and then detecting when it comes back. The returning laser light will have slightly different arrival times than when it was sent out based on those vibrations. If it's vibrating out, it's going to be a little shorter than if it's vibrating in. And while that sounds incredibly minute, and it is, it's enough to be able to take that data feed it back through and create a sound file based on it. So you could replicate things that are being said or other sounds that are going on. Uh, And in fact, there are a lot of places that uh, that due to their classified nature, due to the secrecy of stuff that goes on inside, they take great pains to try and uh, obfuscate any view into the place, whether that's creating sort of a double glazing on the window so it disperses the laser beam and thus the laser beam can't get a good read um, or other elements as well. So I mean, that's super spy stuff that most of us don't have to worry about. But as Davis would say, that is a more um, relevant fear than someone using a camera to look in. Uh, that's not as likely. I mean, why would you do it? I've oh, got it's another... less expensive. <laughs> well, that's yeah. true. <laughs> But Sorry, you, just you have, be paranoid, you everyone. Do to, you do have to get your ac- access to the algorithm, though. That's true. That's true. <laughs> no, I've got another technology in mind. What's and that? It's where you just grab somebody from the room and throw them in a van and demand to know what was said. That's not so much a technology as it is a valid strategy. Uh, <laughs> hey, vans are a technology. Yes, but you could just as easily throw them in the back of a horse-drawn carriage. I mean, it's just... Which are also a technology. The options are endless. <laughs> uh, there are, of course, also long-range microphones. Uh, yeah. You probably oh, right. have seen these uh, advertised in the back of a comic book. Uh, like parabolic mics Yeah, that's, that's the really popular one. Like, that's... If you ever see, like, the, the spy kits that are made for kids who are interested in this kind of stuff, there's usually some sort of parabolic mic in, involved in that. Uh, parabolic mics are meant to be sensitive and directional. Uh, they're not terribly good at being directional, but the really high-powered ones are fairly sensitive. Uh, so the idea is that you're you're concentrating on a specific area to try and pick up sound from that area while trying to block sound from as other from all the other directions as much as possible. Right, because as as you keep turning up sensitivity in any kind of recorder, you're going to increase your noise. Yeah, it's it's like turning up the gain on a microphone. If you crank that way up, you're going to get a lot of noise, and and it's going to be harder for you to concentrate on the signal. Uh, there are a lot of different models of long-range microphones, and they all have varying degrees of directionality and sensitivity. And uh, uh, but they all work on basically the same principle, the idea of boosting an acoustic signal to the point where you can hear it, where normally you would not be able to. There are not very many out there that are uh, powerful enough and, and effective enough to be able to listen to a conversation beyond like 50 meters away, unless people are shouting, in which case you could probably go a little further. But um, you know that they have their limitations, whereas the laser, I mean, as long as you have a line of sight, you could, in theory, be really far away from the actual conversation taking place and be able to replicate it. Also, depending on 
who the person spying on you is. They could just listen to you through your cell phone. Yeah, there are a lot of other options, right? <laughs> um, but at any rate, so if this is not really good as a spy technology, what else could we use it for? Uh, well, it could be used to reconstruct conversations for court cases and, and forensics within the justice system. Yep. Uh, of course, it requires that you have had a camera in place of that area in the first place. But yes, you but can many do that. places do. Yep. Be paranoid, everyone. Yeah. Uh, it could help out in hospitals. Uh, the the kind of software could monitor vital signs like like breath and blood flow from a distance, like we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. which would be especially useful in cases where you want to disturb the patient as little as possible. Which I would. I, I would posit as everyone, yeah. but but especially like infants. Yeah, the idea being that you know, yeah. yeah, people who who might not be able to alert you uh, in a change, like a, especially a sudden change in their health, uh, this would be very useful to monitor that type of stuff and get a very early look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or hey, uh, laparoscopy is pretty cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Putting cameras where cameras don't usually go into human bodies, and uh, y- you could use this to take more precise measurements of what's going on inside of a human body. Joe, have you ever wondered what your spleen sounds like? I don't need to wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Its voice whispers sweet nothings in my ear. That's better than my answer, which was, I can show you. Uh, All right, so uh, going back to the TED Talk, uh, Davis actually talked about how this could even tell us more about materials themselves and how they behave. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was really cool. The idea that it's kind of like reversing the the approach that they had mm-hmm. been taking, where they were looking at the vibrations and determining what sound was being made to cause those vibrations. Instead, they end up measuring vibrations and then figuring out how that material would behave uh, depending upon the different types of stresses being put on that material. So the first example he shows was a it was a, a wire. Uh, st- like a wire sculpture of a of a human figure, mm-hmm. and they had it on a on a surface like it's on a little pedestal and it was resting on like a shelf or a table or something, and you see a hand come into frame and bang on the the uh, the surface quite a few times to create little vibrations in the wire frame. Yeah, the yeah. Wire character. It was uh, it was uh, to the tune of shave and a haircut. Two bits, and they ended up uh, measuring this with their camera equipment. But instead of trying to recreate the shave and a haircut knock, they did it to find out how this material behaves when stresses are put on it, and their algorithm could then simulate that material's behavior, and they could uh, virtually drag any part of that material and then let go to see how it would snap back into place, uh, creating kind of this virtual model, but using real imagery. It was really interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the this little wire figure was not the only thing that he showed a test of. Right. He showed uh, a, a bush. They ended up uh, shooting a video of a bush as it was moving through uh, because of, I believe it was a breeze that was just blowing. The yeah, bush. yeah, it was just a shrub outside of his apartment, yeah. I think. And then they were able to, with getting enough of that uh, information, they were able to then recreate that as well. And so you had this image of the bush and he could pick any point of it and virtually pull on it and it would show how that bush would move. And it looks like it's just video that's been shot of this yeah. bush as someone has, you know, 
kicked it or something. Yeah. Uh, and also showed a, a, like a curtain or a tapestry hanging and how that would move based upon, uh, the same sort of thing, like based upon the sort of stresses you could put on it, whether you're tugging at one corner or the center or whatever. How, how it would ripple back into place. Yeah. Right. And this was based on extremely small, like, like invisible motions to the eye. In the case of the curtain, uh, it was just, just tiny currents of air that were moving through the room. And so it was, it was really, really striking getting to watch it. You know, uh, artistically, this kind of thing could let filmmakers adjust the motion of objects after a video has already been shot. Like, like if, if, if hair was, was blowing the wrong way in, in, in a shot because you've, because <laughs> you, you've kind of, you've kind of plastered a couple different, a couple different frames together or something like that, then you could move the hair in another direction. Do you remember that phase in the history of video games? Full motion video games. When they were, no, when everyone was obsessed with hair blowing in the wind. I don't think we're over that yet. I was about to say, what do you mean remember? It's happening today. (laughs) I mean, that's like the thing that all graphics uh, boasting referred to. It's two things. Look at this character's hair moving. It's it's the hair and it's water. Those are the two. Like the water effects and the hair effects. But no, I was going to say like this could create a new era of full motion video video games. (laughs) Finally. Finally. We've been been waiting waiting for for it so long. Exactly the reason we don't have that yet is that we don't know what to make these characters look like when they're supposed to jiggle. I I am looking forward to the resurgence of the full motion video video game because I need to make sure that I have a transition plan for when I am finished doing my (laughs) futurism. I need to have another career to move into. And I think FMV actor in low-budget video games is my niche. I, You know, if Tim Curry can do it, you can do it too. Yeah, nowhere near the panache that Mr. Curry had in things like that Frankenstein game. Well, work on it. Also, your listeners over at Tech Stuff would be so happy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So we, we will see if that day arrives. But more practically, it could let engineers test structures for wear, like, like predict damage from earthquakes, important things like that. Yeah, it's really kind of an interesting way of advancing our knowledge of material science in an indirect fashion. It's pretty amazing. Uh, also could tell us things about like resonant frequencies, that sort of stuff, which again is very similar to making sure you're you're engineering things properly in mm-hmm. the case of earthquakes or, you know, we've we've heard the horror stories about uh, bridges and resonant frequencies, that kind of stuff. Oh, sure. Really fascinating. Uh, and uh, we're, we're sitting in an audio studio right now. I wonder if it could have applications in trying to figure out how to best insulate Yeah, how to best space. baffle uh-huh. a sound studio, yeah. uh, which we often find baffling. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note. Members of the audience, have you ever heard drilling in a forward-thinking podcast? (laughs) We tried to edit most of the drilling out, but sometimes some drilling might get through. Yeah. I I blame Ben Bolin and his search for lost gold. (laughs) But, uh, you know, anyway, guys, if you have suggestions for future topics we can tackle here on Forward Thinking, whatever they may be, you should write us and let us know. The email address is fwthinking at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Google Plus. We are FW Thinking at both of those places, or search FW Thinking and Facebook will pop right up. You can leave us a message, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. <laughs> <laughs>
Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.